Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is Laxdala Saga. Again. Still, I mean, this is episode 12 or so. Yes, but the last couple episodes have been rocketing along. We've got, yeah. we've, we've had interpersonal drama. We've had plotting chieftains, love and hate, twice dead twig bellies, thrice <laughs> dead husbands of Gudrun Oswald's daughter, sons looking for vengeance. Lockstyle Saga took its time getting here, but it's arrived with a bang. Well, you're coming around now, aren't you? Well, we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, okay. First, we need to get everyone up to speed with what happened last time on Saga Thing. Reeling from the assassination of their oldest brother by their foster brother Botley Thorlikson, the Olufsons are at loose ends and unsure of the way forward. But what's this? Their mother Thorgood has a compass that's pointed due vengeance. Unwilling to let the matter lie with her murdered son, Thorgood's got a stomach for revenge, and an amuse-bouche of killing two minor accomplices proves thin gruel for her appetite. Like any good stage mother, Thorgood pushes her sons to act. Unable to endure her insults any longer, Hattledor, Hatt, Hattledor, <laughs> Olafsson assembles a team of nine stars. No, you, you should probably go back and say that name properly. <laughs> Didn't you hear the end of the last episode? <laughs> did, yes. Hattor Olofsson, Hattor Olofsson assembles a team of nine all-stars to take to Bortley's farm. Accompanied by Thorgerd and her steely glare, the Avengers corner Bortley in a big shed. They cut him down, but Bortley takes Aun Twigbelly with him. Thorgerd's pleased as punch, but Botley's widow, Gudrun, is left with sour grapes and some dirty laundry. Gudrun chats with the killers a while and sees them off casually. But her quick eyes miss nothing, and when Helgi Harbitson gives his bloody spear a polish on her shawl, Gudrun merely smiles. She eventually moves to a new farm with her two sons, including the posthumous child, Botley Botlison. And as her sons grow up, Gudrun watches over them and waits for her own chance at revenge. And it's not like she didn't have options. Her new neighbor, Thorgils, likes the cut of Gudrun's jib and keeps offering to kill her enemies as a kind of odd flirtation. Meanwhile, another eligible bachelor, the skipper Thorkel Eosen, borrows the fabled sword Skofnung from his cousin and utterly fails to use it to kill an outlaw. Advised by the devious Snorri Gothi, Thorkel sails for Norway with the outlaw in tow, while Snorri plots to smooth Thorkel's path to Gudrun's heart. So many plans, so few chapters remaining. How will it all shake out this time in... Laxdala Saga! Chapters 59 to 64. So, uh, we're enthusiastic about this saga at this point. Uh, that's what I heard from you earlier. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what changed, John? Well, to be clear, we have read this thing before. So, um, you know, we're we're anticipating a bit. But yeah, I would say I'm, I'm yeah. warmer on the second half of this saga than the first. They both have their charms, but the personalities are more compelling and the plotting yeah. is tighter in the second well, half. Well, can I tell you uh, something about myself that maybe you don't know? I don't know. Well. It's awfully early in the podcast for that. I, awfully early in the evening for that. <laughs> this is more of a third drink conversation. Yeah, it is. But uh, it, this is a fairly simple thing. Um, I have never read the entirety of this saga. Is that true? It is true. Um, I always, uh, so the first time I read it was in graduate school and it, it, mm -hmm. it, it came up at the end of the semester. And, um, <laughs> if you know anything about graduate school and the end of the semester. And Andy. It, it's not the most pleasant time <laughs> of, of the semester. So I read, um, I, I believe I always get up to, 
around this area. I've definitely read this part mm-hmm. before, um, but mm-hmm. it's the it's the part that we're going to be doing in the next. So not next episode, but after that is where I'll, I'll usually have stopped. So it's uh, there's, so there's actually some surprises in store for you. Yes. Oh, yes. that'll be fun. It's going to be exciting. Um, I, I mean, it's a saga. I have a feeling I know how it all wraps up. But, I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, uh, the idea that this this that it's a slow build and that it it pays off in the end, uh, it's mm-hmm. actually a pretty common opinion. Uh, criticism, whenever it's leveled at this saga, it's usually focused on the early story, the settlement generations. Mm-hmm. And I think when we get to our own judgments, that might happen there as well. But you can't really have the emotional and dynastic impact of this second half without the foundations being laid over the first 40 chapters or so. You just got to be patient. I, I mean, yeah, of course, but that's that's really true of any significant piece of literature, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, without the buildup, Moby Dick's the story of a fishing trip that got out of hand. I mean, <laughs> all right. But, I mean, as you say, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of as we start here. Um, I'm going to offer a quick recap of the most important bits of information to set this up. Um, Andy, we just did a recap. That's literally what the newsreel is for. It is, but I'm going to do it quicker and in a normal voice so people can actually understand it. Oh, okay, fine. No, By I just, all means. <laughs> I just want to highlight certain aspects of it. The, the mm-hmm. newsreel is fine. Mm-hmm. Um but here's where we're at. Boltley is dead. Gudrun is upset. Thorgil's normal voice. What's that? Oh, oh I see. You're very Carry funny. Up. You're a very funny guy. <laughs> Thorgil's Hotlison, who Snorri doesn't like, is flirting with Gudrun and fostering her eldest son. Mm. Thorkettle tried to kill an outlaw named Grimm, but ended up befriending him. Snorri thinks Thorkettle will be a good match for Gudrun, and Thorkettle's worried about being tasked with avenging Boltley. He's afraid. So Snorri says, why don't you sail to Norway for the year and come back after the dust settles? And it seems he's got something in mind for Thorgil's Hotlison as well, because he's obviously angling to marry Gudrun. I think that covers it. Hey, yep, that's uh, that sounds like an episode of Mi Corazon. I think that's, uh, that's, that's the telenovela version of what's going on in the saga. Great. That's right. Good, good. So we are all on the same page now. Uh, we are ready to go. We're ready yeah, to start uh, hang this on. Episode. One more quick point uh, before we start. Okay, what's that? Uh, we hinted at this in the last section of our last episode, but the passage of time gets a little fuzzy in the sagas and in this saga in particular. Well, the passage of time is fuzzy in my mind as well, if I'm being well, honest. Well, that's just because you're getting older, Andy. Is that right? Okay. Well, I, yeah, I think I think you're right, though. Uh, within an individual section of this saga or any saga, it tends to move kind of like season to season and it makes decent sense. It's chronological and logical. But once a section concludes, time can sometimes pass quickly without any reference, without us noticing that it t- mm-hmm. that it passed. Yeah, and, and when that happens, you you often find that many years have passed only after things have already gotten going, right? which yes. is the case for the section of the saga we're going to discuss here. Yeah, we've definitely moved ahead in time quite significantly. Right, and you wouldn't know it at first from the flow of the saga itself. There's no direct mention of time passing. Uh, we don't see like a calendar flipping past or, you know, the... the uh, the clock spinning as it goes by. Uh, we just switch from Botley's death to the story of Thorgils and Thorkel. Uh, all we know from the text is that the section we're about to cover begins sometime in the early summer after Thorkel Eilson had sailed to Norway on Snorri's advice. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, he would have traveled to Norway just before the weather turned the previous year, so that makes right. sense. Uh, but at some point, most likely in the last episode, Enough time passed for young Butley Butleson to grow from a baby into a 12-year-old boy. 
yes, he's definitely 12 in this section of the saga. And his brother Thorlek, uh, who's living with Thorgils Holtlesson, uh, is 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Which means that the Thorkett and Grimm section at the end of our last episode must have occurred a long time after the slaying of Botley. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I think, you know, I went back and looked at this uh, while preparing this episode, and I think the time jump occurred when we first met Thorgils and Thorkettle at the uh, at the start of chapter 57. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of covered at the end of the previous chapter where it talks about how Gudrun uh, moved to Helgafell and she was establishing herself. Um, and I think it just says something like Thorlake and Boltley grew up there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that no one is surprised by the sudden shift forward like I was. <laughs> Okay, so Boltley is 12, Thorlek is 16, and in saga terms, they should be more than ready to avenge their father. And speaking of which... Part 41, a clandestine cliffside conversation. Amazing alliteration, John. Why, thank you. Do you see what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) So clever. In the summer of Boltley Boltlison's 12th year, Gudrun sent a message to Snorri Gothi asking him to meet her near a cliff on the north bank of the river that runs from Haukadalsvatn. Uh, now, this is somewhere between Snorri's farm at Salingsdaltunga and Gudrun's at Helgafell, right? That's right. And uh, by my calculation, Snorri's got the much easier ride coming south from Salingsdal. <laughs> Not only is it a reasonably flat journey, at least by comparison, it's also much shorter. Oh, Andy. How much time do you spend mapping that out? Be honest. I mean, not too long, honestly. Mm-hmm. I spent most of my time playing around with the rivers and trying to spot the cliff on the North Bank, if I'm being honest. And that's kind of hard to do from a top-down thing. And also, <laughs> like, over a thousand years has passed. So <laughs> it's a little, sure. a little yeah, difficult. that makes sense. But, uh, you know, the, the general area and their individual journeys, they're not too hard to map out, I don't think. I have driven in this area a few times now. I'm familiar with the road from Helga Fettel to Erikstader, which is basically the same route that Gudrun would have had to have taken. It's speculation. Sure, speculation. But it makes sense that she would have traveled closer to the shoreline along a path similar to what is now Snæfellsnesvegur. And while I didn't make it up to Laugar and Salingsdalstunga, I was really close in Laxerdaler, like 10 minutes away. So yeah, I feel like I can speak on these two trips and... I'm telling you that Snorri's trip was easier, not only because of the terrain, but because of the distance. All right. How far are we, t- how far are we talking here? Well, I mean, traveling along paths similar to the roads of modern Iceland, if we want to use those as a rough estimate of the route that they might have taken, which is what I'm going to do, uh, Snorri would be traveling a little over 20 miles. I mean, that that's a good distance. Right? That's, that's, that's a day on horseback. Yeah. But Guthrun has to travel something like 45 miles from Helgafettel to the meeting point. And that's a difficult journey that would take at least a day and a half. And I can tell you, it'll mess your car. Well, it won't mess your car up, but it'll be dirty. If you start at Helgafettel with a clean car, you're going to arrive at Eriksdaler with a dirty car. What if you start with a horse, Andy? I think you'll both be dirty and tired by the end of it. (laughs) The problem is that time is fuzzy in the sagas, and so is space. Uh, the real Gudrun and Snorri would have had quite a journey, uh, but we've just spent about five minutes talking about how far they went and how long it might have taken each of them. Mm-hmm. And in the saga, their departure from home and their arrival at the cliffside meeting point is a matter of a couple of lines. That's true. It's pretty quick. So now some of you might be wondering why they're meeting by a cliff near a river rather than, say, in the comfort of a farmhouse. 
And that's because this is a super secret meeting. <laughs> yes, right. Each of them arrives with only one companion. Gudrun's brought her son Botley along. And this is where we're finally told that he's 12 years old, by the way. But also that he's got the strength and wit of a full-grown man. Oh, mm-hmm. and he's, uh, he's carrying Legbiter. Yes, he is. His father's sword. Indeed. Uh, Legbiter. So, uh, I, I actually, John, I wonder why Boltley got to inherit the sword, basically passing mm. over his older brother, Thorlick. I mean, I mean, I would just speculate because Boltley is obviously the heroic type and Thorlick isn't. He's just a guy. He's just some guy. His, so the mother, mother identified fairly quickly who's who, right? Right. She's, right. She, know, she knows her hero when she sees one. <laughs> Fair enough. So, like I said, this is a super top-secret meeting. Uh, Botley and Snorri's companion are stationed at the top of the cliff to keep watch. Yeah, and down at the base of the cliff, Snorri wonders why Gudrun summoned him to this clandestine conference. She tells him that even though 12 years have passed since Botley's death, the event is still fresh in her mind. 12 years, Andy. Yes. There's the uh, there's our reference to the passage of time. That's correct. Finally. Uh, then she reminds him that he did promise her at that time his assistance if she waited patiently. Twelve years is a long time to wait. Mm-hmm. So finally, she explains the purpose of her summons. By now, I have lost all hope of you giving your attention to this case, Snorri. I've waited as long as my patience will allow. I want to ask your advice on how and where to take revenge. Yeah, and we have to assume that Snorri is not super surprised by this, right? I mean, he, right. he knows why he's been summoned. He's been waiting for it. Uh, right. So rather than jumping right in, he simply asks her what she has in mind. See, Snorri's so good at managing these situations and redirecting the flow of a person's wrath. He really is. And usually to his own benefit, of course. Well, I mean, of course. That's what makes him great. And dangerous. I, only if he doesn't like you. Only if you're gaining power and influence anywhere near him, then maybe you're in trouble. That's why he doesn't like you. (laughs) He's shrewd. It's what he is. And also, it's not entirely true. When Snorri asks what she's got in mind, she says that not all the Olafsons will remain unscathed. Which is a good line. I like that. It is, but Snorri doesn't like it. Um, He forbids her to take any action against men of such a high social standing in the district. Sure. Right, but but why, John? Why does he say that the Olafsons are off limits? I mean, I think for a few reasons, but among uh, first of all, it doesn't look good to start attacking powerful men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well, and he's worried that there are many kinsmen make a big deal out of avenging them. Exactly. Uh, well, but but also, uh, this would be once again kindling a feud among people, clans, and groups who have been. married together, who have been connected to each other, that this is setting off a whole new powder keg when we finally have peace. Uh, I don't know if that's true, because Gudrun and her family aren't necessarily married into any of those families. No, but the connections are all there, right? That um, she was married to Botley. Botley was the foster son of Thorgird. uh, And the brother of the foster brother of Kjartan. Nah. Uh, That it's... The whole thing has been set up to be uh, an internecine feud from the beginning, right? I agree with that. established that. And so Snorri is trying to stop a recurrence of that feud. I think he's just trying to end a feud, but sure. I I would also argue that he doesn't want to put himself in danger, so he needs to direct Gudrun to a smaller target than the Olafsons. Shrewd. Indeed he is. 
Now, with the Olafsons out, Gudrun then brings up Lambi, Kjartan's half-brother, uh, calling him the most malicious of them. Yeah. Uh, now, in case anybody's forgotten, uh, Lambi is the son of Melkorka and Thorbjorn Pakbar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the half-brother of Olaf Peacock. He was the first to wound Botley in the attack of the Shilling. Yeah. Lambi is a logical target, but mm-hmm. Snorri doesn't like that choice either. No, he says that Lambi may deserve a piece of the vengeance, but he's not worth the trouble it might cause. And why not, John? Because Lambi's value doesn't equal Botley's when it comes to compensation. He's just not of the same social status. Well, I'm going to be a little suspicious here. It sounds to me like Snorri's looking for a good payday when this comes time for <laughs> settlement. Uh, typical greedy lawyer. He knows who's going to be uh, handling this. You know, your heel turn on Snorri since I took him as Thingman has been... Utterly remarkable. I'm just, I, I, I'm. No, no, I know it kills you to attack him, <laughs> and I take great joy in that. Uh, but the issue isn't the payout, at least not precisely. Uh, Lombi isn't a good target because his social value, his status, just yeah. is nowhere near Baldi's. Yeah. Uh, if Guthrun is hoping to balance the ledger through revenge, Lombi's a poor choice because he just doesn't matter enough. Yeah, I mean, the story's ta- he, he's creating a tapestry here. He's creating art, this this vengeance that he's he's la- <laughs> about to lay out. And he's like, Lombi is not quite the kind of quality man that we're mm-hmm. looking for. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, so with her choices getting narrower, Gudrun says, It may be that we can't take an equal toll from the men of Laxadal, but someone is going to pay the price for Botley's death whatever dale he dwells in. And so she then suggests Thorstein the Black, but this too is rejected. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a lot of names and relationships to keep track of here, and it's been a few weeks since the last episode. Uh, Thorstein the Black is a good friend of Olaf Peacock. Mm -hmm. Um, Hotler Olafsson basically browbeat Thorstein to joining the Olafsons for this attack on Botley. Uh, Thorstein didn't like the idea. I believe he said something like, it's a bad idea for you kinsmen to keep killing each other off. It's good. I mean, that's he's actually he's he's right. Yes, I can't deny a that. Rare, a rare breath of sanity. Yeah, uh, but Thorstein did participate, even if he didn't land any blows on Botley. Uh, mm-hmm. But but notice how we are getting farther and farther away from the Olafsons and their blood kin with each target that is recommended. Snorri's mm-hmm. doing his best to give Gudrun a target that will insulate them from further aggression by the Olafsons and hopefully, as you said earlier, end the feud altogether. But we got to do it in a safe way. Again, it's a shrewd move, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, but yes, uh, Snorri doesn't like the choice of Thorsten the Black either. He argues, and I think rightfully, that Thorsten didn't actually do anything in the attack <laughs> yes. on Botley. Uh, Killing him doesn't resolve anything. Yeah, and he's got a good point there. Uh, Thorstein the Black was a voice of reason in that whole affair, even if he was ignored. Um, I would hate for him to get killed just for reluctantly being there. That's kind of sad. So, unfortunately, uh, there aren't many targets left. Of the nine men who participated, Snorri has directed Guthrun away from the four Olafsons, away from Lombi, and away from Thorstein the Black. Mm-hmm. That's six. Leaving Aon Twigbelly... No, Twigbilly died in the attack when he rushed in like a madman. Yes. <laughs> it's a, you know, brave, but a bad move by Twigbilly. Yeah. He let his passion for justice cloud his judgment. So he was the seventh of the attackers. And mm. then there's Barthi Gudmunderson. But his name doesn't even come up. Yeah, no, that's probably because he's a nephew of the Olafsons, right? So mm. he's still part of that same family. Yeah. Barthi's mother is their sister, Thurid. 
That's right. Uh, he also lives very far away uh, and is the least available of the company. Yeah, exactly. And Barthy is the eighth of the Boltley Slayers. But he's not the last one. Yeah. There were nine. There's one more guy. And Snorri quickly reminds Gudrun, You're passing over completely men who, to my mind, are more worthy of taking vengeance upon, and who actually dealt Boltley his death blow, like Helgi Harbinson. Well, he's half right there. Remember, Helgi Harbinson is the brother-in-law of Thorstein the Black, and he came along because he was new to Iceland and, well, he just... Wanted to support his wife's brother, and he's a big, strong man who likes action. Yeah, he happened to be staying with Thorsten at the time. Yeah. yeah, so so here we are, right? We are yet another shrewd step further away from the Olafsons and everyone connected with them. Yep, and Helgi was the man at the door when Boltley rushed out. He's the one who stabbed Boltley with a spear, a wound that knocked Boltley back against the wall. But mm-hmm. it is also worth remembering that it was Stainthor Olafson who cut Boltley's head off, but... Well, yes. Can't get him. Technically speaking. Uh, Steinthor struck the blow that ultimately ended Bolly's life, but Helgi's the one who sliced his stomach open with a spear. Yeah. Right? It was really just a matter of a few seconds before Helgi was the slayer. Uh, <laughs> he knocked Botley back. He allowed everyone, including Thorgerd, to rush in to finish that job. And Helgi was the one, remember, who wiped his bloody spear on Gudrun's shawl. Absolutely, yes. And I remember Hotdoor calling him out for that, saying it was a cruel thing to do. Right. And when Helgi realized he'd done this, he realized it was a mistake. He said, something tells me that my own death lies under the end of that shawl. Which you uh, wisely suggested and surprised me with some brilliance that it could be a reference to baby Boltley in utero. I'm going to try not to be insulted that you you were surprised by it. Well, uh, so I'm, here we are. I've, I've known you for uh, a while. Baby Botley should be ready to fulfill his prophecy. And since uh, Snorri has said that Stainthor is off limits to Gudrun, Helgi Harbinson is the only option left. Well, he is quite literally the last of the slayers available to Gudrun, at least as far as Snorri is concerned. And that really does mm. highlight the limitations of Gudrun's agency in this saga. If she were a man she would be free to choose her target and act, to wield the weapon herself as a righteous avenger, whatever the consequences might be. But because she's a woman, she's only able to point the spear and hope that a man will drive it home for her. Right. I mean, we have seen exceptions to this, right? I mean, earlier in the saga, uh, Breach's Alth went and uh, undertook her own vengeance. But that is very much the exception, not the rule. Right. right? We've seen something much closer to this with Thorger in the last episode. Yeah. Right. She was the one to instigate the attack on Botley to avenge her son's murder, and she even joined the group on the journey, which is extremely rare in these stories, and was urging them on throughout the attack. Yeah, and she's right there when Botley is holding his entrails in, and she's yelling at her sons to finish the job and put some space between the trunk and the head. Now that's Ale Scott Grimson's daughter for you. But again, as you said, right, she can't wield that weapon herself. Right, She has to urge someone else to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Now that Snorri's finally agreed on a target, mm-hmm. Gudrun expresses some displeasure with how this top-secret meeting <laughs> has actually gone. It didn't go the way she planned. She says, I'm not content to let off all the others against whom I've nurtured such hostility for so long. Mm. In other words, Helgi alone is not enough for Gudrun. Well, now this, see, this is where Snorri's symphony really comes together. Oh, symphony, his symphony, not a tapestry. Mm-hmm. Mm. He's been orchestrating this whole thing beautifully to create a revenge well plot said. that not only protects him and Gudrun, but one that should, if it goes well, end the feud and 
Maybe eliminate an annoying rival as a bonus. It's a cunning plan. I have to admit it. Well, I mean, you know, this man's a shrewd negotiator, and he usually gets what he wants. Yes, he does. So here's the plan. Rather than killing Lombi and Thorsten the Black, Snorri, or rather uh, his chosen representative, is going to convince those two to assist Gudrun's sons in the attack on Helgi. It's a sort of uh, active compensation uh, for their involvement in Botley's death. It's a crazy idea, but it's brilliant, right? If it works, mm-hmm. Snorri has successfully <laughs> yes. insulated both himself and Gudrun from the Olafsons. Getting Lambi and Thorstein the Black involved complicates things in such a way that it would be very difficult for the Olafsons to seek revenge if they wanted to. Absolutely, right? Particularly because of Lambi, since he is their uncle. Exactly. Now, there's only one problem, as Gudrun quickly points out. How do you convince two men who participated in the attack on Boltley to suddenly turn against one of their companions? Mm. And making matters worse, how do you convince Thorstein the Black to join in on a plot to kill his own brother-in-law? What's Snorri say to this? What's his cunning plan? How does it all come Ah, together? It's easy. He says, whoever leads the attack will have to sort that out. Listeners, I am shaking my head right now. Whoever leads the attack will have to sort that out. Kind of. That's uh, right. Come on. That that delegation of authority, Andy, is the mark of a true leader. <laughs> it's the hardest part. Uh, also, also we should say he does have a man in mind for the role of leader. Oh, of course he does. It's all part of his cunning plan. That's right. He's thinking of Thorgils, the guy who's been hanging around Gudrun's farm for the past years. The same Thorgils that Snorri hates. The one he mm-hmm. thinks interferes too much, if I remember the phrase. That's the guy. The one who may or may not be making moves in the district to gain influence. Well, it's a matter of interpretation. Well, But yes, he's he's recommending Thorgils. He's doing a good turn for a rival. Andy. Oh, is he? Well, while, Thor- <laughs> <laughs> while Gudrun agrees that Thorgils is certainly capable of pulling off the plan, she doubts that he'll agree. She's already approached the subject with him, and he has made it very clear that he won't do anything to avenge Boltley unless Gudrun agrees to marry him. And here you can imagine a sly smile spreading across Snorri's face as he says, Don't worry, Gudrun. I've got a cunning plan for that as well. This guy's full of cunning plans. As he begins to chuckle to himself. Part 42. A cunning plan in motion. A few nights later... Gudrun invites her sons, Thorlik and Botley, to join her in the Leek Garden for a private conversation. You know, where you have your clandestine conversations. Uh, When they arrive, they find their mother sitting with the blood-stained clothes of their father. His shirt and breeches, right, they're both spread out before her. And she says, these same clothes that you see here challenge you to avenge your father. I need not say more than that, for it is unlikely that you would be swayed by my words if you are unmoved by such displays and reminders as this. Well, say what you want about Gudrun. She knows how to make a dramatic I mean, it's impressive. Maybe not quite as dramatic as uh, Hildegun sort of draping Flossie in Hoskill's uh, cloak full of dried blood, uh, but it's impressive. <laughs> I mean, that just ruined Flossie's <laughs> dinner. Very rude, I mean, if you but, ask me. You know, it worked. It did what it was supposed to do. All that cake blood raining down on him. And uh, into his dinner, uh, it definitely fired Flossie up to avenge Hoskold, or at least to skip dessert. <laughs> sure. But uh, I prefer Gudrun's approach here. Much cleaner. 
And I, uh, I appreciate the aesthetic of the time, the setting, the arrangement of the clothing in the leek garden under the moonlight. It's lovely. I'm not really sure how the leek garden adds anything to this, but all right. John, I spent, you want to talk about like uh, spending time looking for mm-hmm. stuff, right? I spent so much time looking for the significance <laughs> of that leek garden. And all I could come up with, like most of the stuff that you search, just it's not, it's not good. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't help. Your I got father nothing. leaked when he was stabbed. <laughs> That's right. Speaking, Speaking of, of leaks, leaks, you should have seen his wounds. <laughs> um, yeah, no, clearly a, a lot of thought went into her presentation, but she didn't have any time left over for picking which part of the garden to meet in. Uh, so <laughs> while both Thorlick and young Butley appreciate the effort their mother has put in here, they can't help but feel obviously a little chastised for their inaction. But they are quick to remind her that they were a bit young to avenge their father until now. Okay, Sure. <laughs> I suppose that's true, at least for Boltley. He's only 12, but Thorlick is 16. What's he been doing? Uh, waiting for his brother to mature, maybe? Uh, <laughs> hanging out in the parking lot at the Circle K? I well, don't he's know. no saga hero. What do 16-year-olds do these days? Uh, anyway, uh, besides, Boltley's the one who inherited Legbiter, right? Uh, yeah. Not Thorlick. So I'm assuming that without Boltley, revenge for their father doesn't work. Perhaps, but whatever the case, both boys are now eager to take on the task, but unsure of where or how to start. Yeah, it's almost like they're too young to be doing this kind of thing. Exactly. Although, you know, other saga heroes uh, at this age would I know. They'd rush right in. Uh, but uh, it is it is another stylistic touch that I, I quite like. How often have we seen 12-year-olds leading the charge in a vengeance plot or in combat with full-grown men? That always strikes me as a bit fantastic. Here, the boys are willing to avenge their father, but they need help organizing the party, putting the plan together, getting this thing off the ground. Well, I mean, Guthrie wonders whether they might be more interested in horse fighting and other games than in <laughs> avenging their father. So uh, clearly they haven't spent the entire time training. Yeah, she probably says this in that tone that mothers use when they're trying to uh, pressure their kids into making the right choice. Mm-hmm. You probably don't have Time to avenge your father. I know you're really busy with your horse fighting and your kneftafel and such. <laughs> yes, you play ball with your friends. I can find someone else to avenge your father. I ran into an old man selling chickens the other day. Maybe he can help. Yeah, that tone, it, it's, it's very effective and it, it mm-hmm. works on them. Uh, they spend the night grumbling to themselves about their mother and the and their duty, and they toss and turn in bed restlessly. Now, uh, Thorgils notices this. Uh, he can tell there's something bothering them, so he pulls them aside to ask what it is. And they explain that they're ready to avenge their father, especially because they're old enough now to attract negative attention in the district if they wait much longer. Right, yeah. At this stage of the game, their inaction is a matter of honor. It's something we've seen quite a few times in the sagas, and it usually motivates the sons or brothers or surviving kinsmen to act. Unless you're Snorri Gothi, of course. Remember, his father Thorgrim was killed by Gisli, and Snorri's lack of interest in avenging his father, well, it's sometimes brought up when other men are trying to shame or anger Snorri. Yes, men who don't pay attention to the whole story. That's right. Snorri, Snorri's father was killed by Snorri's maternal uncle. How do you take vengeance there? Well, I would also point out that Gisli was also uh, killed in retaliation while Snorri was still a very young man. I agree with all. Well, Snorri he was, was a posthum- robbed of his opportunity for manly revenge. Andy. Like Boltley, Snorri was a posthumous <laughs> baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 
now that they've grown up a little bit, these boys are keenly aware that the men of the district are watching them. Yeah. Uh, even if they aren't, by the way. <laughs> uh, so they're feeling a lot of pressure. And this is interesting news to Thorgils. And he's not at all surprised the next morning when he's walking with Guthrun and mm. she brings it up. But Thorgils wonders aloud why Guthrun would be talking to him about it. Mm-hmm. You've got no reason to talk about this matter with me since you've absolutely refused to marry me. But he does admit that he could... That's the voice, huh? Yes, he's proud, but capable. <laughs> I don't know why, but I I, I hear uh, Yosemite Sam's voice when I read Thorgill's. Oh, you do? Wow, oh, God, God darn it. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't hear that. That's fine. I'm not suggesting you should do it. I mean, if... <laughs> I, I if you want to take over Thorgils, if you're but eager, calm and capable. No, 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 I'm just saying calm and capable are not the adjectives I usually would think of to describe him. Uh, this is a guy who's about to pull off some pretty yeah, cool we'll stuff. See. We'll see. Okay, yep. absolutely. Yeah, but he he does admit that he could easily knock off the men who played a role in Boltley's killing if she agreed to marry him. Subtle, <laughs> uh, and I. I think this is, of course, exactly what uh, Gudrun and Snorri are counting on. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the leverage they need to get Thorgils to help the boys with their revenge plot. Yeah, but uh, Gudrun doesn't want to marry Thorgils at all. Well, no, she doesn't. Uh, but at the same time, she acknowledges that Thorgils would be the ideal person to lead the attack on Helgi Harbinson. Well, Thorgils says, and I love this line, Well, it, it makes no difference to me whether his name is Helgi or anything else. It's not beyond me to take him on or anyone else. But I won't do anything unless you promise before witnesses that you'll marry me if I help get your sons their revenge. He's just walking right into the web, isn't he? I mean, he can't help himself. Yeah, this is where Snorri's cunning plan comes together. Uh, She agrees to keep any promise she gives, Mm -hmm. although she has certain stipulations about the number of witnesses and who should or shouldn't be there to hear her oath. Hmm. She says she wants to make sure that Thorgil's foster brother Hotdor is there, but not Ornolf. Okay, see, that's a red flag right there, Thorgil's. What? Just boilerplate patrol stuff. <laughs> no, no, it's not. She's it lim- is, the, it, It's always required that nobody named Ornolf be present. <laughs> I don't think that's the case at all. <laughs> She's limiting the number of witnesses and stipulating that Hotdor Armosen can be there, but not his brother Ornolf. Why might that be, John? Well, in the fine print of the plan that was le- that was laid out in the last chapter, uh, Snorri says that uh, Ornolf is too clever. <laughs> Red flag, but I'm all for it. <laughs> Let's go. Apparently, uh, Hotdar Armisen is a as thick as a brick. Yes. Uh, so the bargain is made, and they gather the witnesses, uh, who will be uh, Thorlik and Botley, and then uh, Hotdar. Uh, Gudrun makes the following oath. So, Andy, you tell me if this sounds good to you. Okay. Thorgils has promised to offer his leadership on a journey to attack Helgi Harbinson, along with my sons, to avenge Botley. Mm-hmm. Thorgils made it a condition of the journey that I agree to marry him. And so, I declare in your presence as witnesses that I promised Thorgils to marry no other man in this country than him, nor do I intend to marry abroad. Mm-hmm. Everyone hears this. And agrees that nobody can find a fault in that oath. Okay. And so it's settled. Thorgils will lead the hold, attack. Hold, hold up. And then... Hold no, up. And, and then the marriage, and then... Wait, nope. what? Well, I just want to review this oath real quick. 
No, 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 no. Everyone agreed there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> We're moving on, Andy. Everyone in everyone includes Thorgils, his foster brother, Hot Thor, who, as we said, is a bit of a dullard, apparently. And mm-hmm. Gudrun's own sons, who aren't exactly unbiased in this, right? I mean, you're not wrong, but what's the point? But, okay, so in the interest of maintaining suspense, I just want to review the oath. Uh, I don't want to point out any issues I might see with it, uh, but let's 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 go over what she okay. said again. All right, so we'll do it again. The oath was this. Okay, let's hear it. I declare in your presence as witnesses that I promised Thorgils to marry no other man in this country than him. Hmm. And nor do I intend to marry abroad. Hmm. 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 All right, listeners, get out a piece of paper, write down your theory, fold it up, tuck it somewhere safe. But but here's what you got to write down. How, yeah, I, I was going to say, <laughs> here's your instructions for how to seal this thing and put it away. Sorry about that. Yeah. What to write yeah. on it yet. Before you seal it, here's your prompt. Now unseal it. Unseal it. Open it up. Pull it out of wherever you tucked it. And unseal it and write, uh, how does Gudrun get out of this uh, binding legal oath? Because mm-hmm. it is a binding legal oath. Okay. Yeah. Write that out. Now so, now, now seal it. Uh-huh. Tuck it away until next episode. So put it somewhere. <laughs> we have to wait that long? Yeah. You want to tuck it somewhere where if you're going to shower, you know, it's not going to get messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, find someplace dry. I was thinking your no. armpit, your cleavage, that's not going to work this no, time. No, no, no. This is not necessary. Why? Why are we talking about this? I was thinking of places you uh, could tuck it. Go tuck yourself. You um, might want to so, choose a more. All right. More. The writing. We, I think we've stalled long enough. The writing should be done by now. Um, I'm still worried about finding an envelope and hiding it, but that's fine. Yeah, it, it's going to be all right. Let's assume everyone can pause here at the section break and take care of the theory tucking on their own time, shall we? Yes, everyone. Tuck yourselves. We'll be right back. <laughs> Part 43. Each man must look out for himself in a tight situation. Now, the first thing that Thorgils needs to do now, the first thing that Thorgils needs to do now that he's in charge is put a team together. Well, I mean, he can probably count Butley and Thorlick in. Oh, absolutely. But uh, Helgi Harbinson is a strong and very capable man. He's also an influential man, so he's likely to have protection if he suspects any danger to himself. That's why Thorgils is looking to gather about 10 men for this mission, including himself. It's not super clear to me how Helgi went from freeloading off his brother-in-law to becoming an influential man in uh, just the space of a few years, but apparently that's what happened. I mean, it's 12 Um, years. Sure, that's a long time. That's long enough. have we seen Uh, uh, Norwegian men uh, of influence show up in Iceland and establish themselves fairly quickly? I think we have. I mean, fairly quickly, sure. I feel like Uh, Helgi Harbinson must have been in other sagas. I withdraw my objection. All right. Uh, so, uh, but to do this, Thorgils is going to need secrecy and more men to take on a man who apparently is so influential as Helgi the Couchsurfer. <laughs> He's got his own place now, you know. <laughs> but uh, you're right. Gathering most of the men, it's going to prove pretty easy. Uh, as you mm-hmm. said, Boltley and Thorlek are in. Uh, so are Thorgils' half-brothers, Haltor and Ornolf. Haltor the Dullard and Ornolf the Wise. Yes, Ornolf the Clever, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Thord the Cat, who is Boltley and Thorlik's half-brother, also joins the party. People may not remember this, so we should cover it. Uh, Thord the Cat is Gudrun's son from a previous marriage to Thorbjorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also the foster son of Snorri Gothi. That's correct. And then there's Svein and Hunbogi, or Hunboy, uh, the sons of Alf of Dalder. Oh, 
okay, but this is the first we're hearing of Sven and, Hun- and Hunbeya. Who are they exactly? Uh, aside from fodder for Helgi's sword, I can assume? <laughs> well, hardly. Um, you know, actually, now might be a good time to cover some genealogy like we promised in our last episode. You know, okay, I, all right. Uh, I feel like actually fulfilling promises like that's a dangerous precedent. <laughs> okay, so what do you got? Well, Sven and Hunboy, uh, known as Hunboy the Strong, they're mm-hmm. the sons of Alf of Dollar. You you said that already? Yes, but that is their connection. Alf of Dollar mm-hmm. is Thorgil's grandfather, making Sven and Hunboy Thorgil's uncles. I see. Okay, okay. And Alf of Dollar is the grandson of Thorstein the Red. Yes. He is the great-grandson of Auth or Un the Deep-Minded, depending on which version you like. And he is the great-great-grandson of Kettle Flatnose. Huzzah! It's all connected now. It is indeed, at least on one side. So let me see if I have this right. Uh, Botley and Thorlick are the great-great-great-great-great-grandsons of Kettle Flatnose. The great-great-great-great-grandsons of Auth the Deep-Minded. Right, and so that makes them the... Great, great, great grandsons of Thorsten the Red. The great, great grandsons of his daughter, uh, Thorgerd. How far do you want to go with this? (laughs) It's a game of chicken at this point. Uh, I think that's enough. Uh, So pretty much everyone in this party is related. Very distantly at this point, right? Some generations back, but they're related. I mean, funny how that works in the sagas. But yes, Mm -hmm. most of the main characters in the saga but especially in this particular party, can all trace their lineage back to Owl the Deep-Minded in some way. Okay, but that's eight people, mm-hmm. and you said there'd be ten. Yes. Uh, who are our last two? How are they uh, related to Kettle Flatnose? Well, I mean, I haven't mapped out their genealogies, mainly because they aren't given uh, a genealogy in the saga, but I can tell you that their names are Thorstein the Black and Lombi Thorbjarnason. Oh, right, of course, yeah, because we already talked about this. Yes. It's all part of Snorri's plan to appease Gudrun right. while we're, hopefully securing an end to the feud. We're building towards it, yes, and I appreciate you yes. playing along and pretending like you don't remember <laughs> what we just talked about. Hey, anything for the listeners. Uh, you do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. I uh, I, I play dumb for the listeners. Yeah, there are a couple of hot doors around here. Uh, real quick, <laughs> hot, though. Hot uh, y- y- yes, uh, you know, the thick one. Uh, you just said you don't have genealogies for Thorsten Black and Lombi. Uh-huh. Um, we can put Lombi off to the side because we already know how he's connected, right? Yeah. He's the half-brother of yeah, Lombi. Yeah, God. that's easy. Uh, but do you not remember who Thorsten the Black is? I freely admit that I do not remember who Thorstein the Black is. Should I recognize him from somewhere with his uh, very, very unique nickname of The Black? <laughs> John, should I recognize him from somewhere other than our previous episode? No. Uh- <laughs> Come on. It's just a really common name. It's just he's just Thorstein the Black. There's, there's another Thorstein the Black who lives in Greenland. There's just there you know or comes from Greenland. They're around. Okay, all right. Well, that was anticlimactic <laughs> and deeply, deeply, deeply disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> I, I really felt there might be something there. Nope. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. Um, all right, well, let's get back to it. Uh, Thorgils is recruiting mm-hmm. Thorstein the Black, who is one of multiple <laughs> Thorstein the Blacks, and uh-huh. Lombi Thorbjarnason. Right, so this is going to be slightly awkward because, as we said, Thorstein and Lombi were both involved in the killing of Botley. Now they're being approached by Thorgils to participate in an attack on one of their fellow attackers, yeah, Helgi Hardbinson. 
And of course, he's also Thorsten's brother-in-law. It's a tall order. So yeah. Thorgils meets up with them at the autumn thing. He starts by approaching Thorstein the Black first, pulling him aside from a large group for a private conversation. Mm-hmm. He explains... In the leak garden, no doubt. Yeah. He explains... No, I don't think it's a leak garden. It might be where they go to the bathroom. I don't know. So oh. It, he, it's a private area. So he explains matter-of-factly the that... The leak garden? Oh, the bathroom is a leak garden. Yeah, I get it. That's I what you were trying you. to say. I didn't. I didn't. I'm, I, me? I thought that's what you were <laughs> trying to say. Don't blame me. I thought you were. <laughs> I thought that was your pun. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Anyway, he <laughs> explains rather matter of factly that Thorstein owes Boltley's children some compensation for participating in their father's <laughs> slaying. He acknowledges that it would hardly be appropriate for them to attack their kinsmen, the Olafsons, but that they do have their mindset on attacking Helgi Harbinson. If Thorstein is interested in helping out, well, Maybe he could clear his debt to the boys and put an end to the matter. Yeah, but we we mentioned that Helgi is Thorsten's brother-in-law. Yes, we've mentioned it many times. Yeah, because that's kind of a big deal. Very big deal. Uh, Thorgils is asking Thorsten to join in on a mission to kill his own brother-in-law. It's kind of against the whole ethos of, <laughs> of uh, yeah. you know, this culture. But, yeah, uh, and so Thorsten is going to push back on this, as you would expect. Yes. Uh, he says, he says, and he's right, it would be a great dishonor for him to be involved in any plot or attack against Helgi. Instead, he offers to pay a substantial settlement fee to appease uh, Botley and Thorlick, and by extension, Gudrun, for uh, Botley's death. But uh, Thorgils isn't taking no for an answer. He says, well, I hardly think it, I hardly think the brothers are doing this for the sake of money. Make no mistake, Thorstein. You've got two choices before you. Either you make the journey or you face harsh punishment when it's dealt out. I also want you to accept this offer. Despite your ties to Helgi, every man must look out for himself in a tight situation. That that line, there's a reason why we made this the uh, title for this part of the yeah. story. That is the least saga line I think I've read in a saga. Is that right? It just doesn't sound... I mean, of course, it's true often. Right. But to just say it flat out like that, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it lacks it lacks a bit of that uh, panache that we expect from an honorable yeah. uh, man about town with his axe. I would say the, the line stuck out to me. So I, I, I looked it up in Icelandic and I worked on my own translation of it. And mm-hmm. I ultimately concluded that's a pretty dang good translation of what is being there said go. there, you know? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's... It's not necessarily what an honorable man wants to hear, but Thorsten has to accept it, especially when he finds out that Lambi Thorbjarnason will be given the same choice. Yeah. And the conversation with Lambi is very similar. Uh, Lambi pushes back at first, saying something like, well, this this is a poor and ignoble way of buying one's peace. Uh, yeah, but he eventually relents when Thorsten the Black then steps in and says, it's not so simple a question, Lambi, that you should refuse so quickly. He explains there are very powerful men involved and that both Thorlick and Butley are within their rights to seek revenge. He also notes that the dishonor of their participation, which he knows is going to be a problem, right, that that's mostly going to fall on him because Helgi is his brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And he says, But like most others, I'm ready to do almost anything to save my own skin. That sounds more like it. And with that, Lombi relents and agrees to become the tenth man. 
but only Ugh. on the condition that his participation should secure the permanent safety of the Olafsons if the attack on Helgi is successful. That's smart stipulation. It is. And when all is agreed, they plan to meet before sunrise three days later at Thorgil's farm at Tunga in Hordedal. All right. So the team is assembled and it's time for some action. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's not rush into things. <laughs> no, don't be hasty, Master Meriadoc. Part 44. The Hunt for Helgi Harbinson. So, once everyone is gathered at Tunga, they set out for a long ride south to the farm of Helgi Harbinson. Uh, he lives at uh, Vattenshorn in Skoradal. Uh, now, the name Vattenshorn means Lake Corner, which is appropriate for the location of this farm at the eastern end of this Skoradal Lake that stretches along the valley. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, there's a wetlands nature preserve in that area now called Fritland with Fitjau. It looks absolutely beautiful, John. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's add it to the tour stop. Yeah, we should. So, as they're traveling, Botley Botlison is dealing with his emotions. Well, he is a tween, so he's had less time to learn <laughs> to be the manly, stoic Aeneas of the sagas. Yeah, no, no. Well, we're told that he's swollen with grief. Which actually is among the accepted ways for men to show grief in the sagas. Yeah, blowing up like a balloon. No, no, swelling with the effort of containing his feelings. Yes, uh, I actually did a little bit of uh, study in my dissertation on swelling and mm-hmm. rage and things like that. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it has been pointed out that Boltley never knew his father. Yeah. So while he's undoubtedly dealing with some pretty strong feelings, the swelling with grief part may be more a matter of narrative convention. Well, I mean, if we're inferring things, he's probably got some feelings tied up in the fact that his mother's been preparing him for this moment for literally his entire life. Right. It's a big moment for him. I mean, uh, he was he remembers yes. being in the cradle and she's handing him leg biter like, <laughs> right. this is the sword that your father used. You're going to use it to kill his killers? What is this? What is this, what is this voice? Uh, she's excited. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is a narrative convention, but, you know, it's, we can accept that he's, he's, uh, he's got a lot going on. Yeah. So, Swollen Boatley and friends travel all day, and it's late evening by the time that they reach Helgi's farm. Yeah, a, a nighttime attack. Crafty. Well, nothing good ever comes of late night visitors in the sagas, especially when there's ten of them. Right, well, and Thorgils is well aware of that, so he has the men dismount in the woods nearby... And they wait while he heads up to the farm all by himself. Now, real quick, are you at all interested in the route that they took? Because the saga details it pretty closely, mm. and I did map it out. Yeah, no, not really, no. Uh, thank you, though. We're, we're in the it's middle about of something 50, here. It's about 50 miles, 80 kilometers, hills, dales, whatnot. Okay, whatever. Okay. Uh, I want to get on with this uh, Did I mention attack, the dales? So I did yeah, oh, you mentioned dales. the dales. And then hills. Uh, it's the it's the hills. It's the it's the and that I'm really excited they, they about. They traverse rivers uh, and such. <laughs> tell you what, and you and I can fly out to Iceland and rent some horses. We can ride the path ourselves. You can tell me all about it. Okay. All, do you promise? Sure, Andy. When we retire. Well, I'll hold you to that. I want to see old man John <laughs> on that little Icelandic horse. Uh, so in the meantime... Thorgils takes a moment to change his clothes. He removes the black cloak, the traditional cloak that you t- you wear for a killing, and instead puts on a hooded cowl of gray homespun. 
Very interesting. Now, if you're wondering what he's up to here, he's basically removing his finer clothing. So you said maybe his killing clothing, but I think it's really more he's dressed too nicely. Um, it reveals well, he, something. His killing clothes are very nice. Well, I mean, if you're a gentleman, you don't go killing in, <laughs> you in rags. You don't kill in your rags. Yeah. No, I think what he's doing is he's removing that finer clothing that reveals something of his status, and he's replacing it with the simplest kind of clothing available, something that might be worn by any poor person wandering the countryside. So you're suggesting that a well-dressed man in a black cloak approaching the farm at night could raise some suspicion? I am suggesting that, <laughs> just, yes. just a possibility? Yeah. I, I should not have dressed as the angel of death. <laughs> <laughs> but some schlub walking you. up, you know, that you're like, oh, here's another yeah. guy asking for food. You know, yeah. that's no, the idea. He's, a, he just a, he's appearing as a simple traveler, and that's uh, much less yeah. threatening than actually showing up as the actual specter of death. Uh, yes. At least that's the hope, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it, it does work. Uh, as he walks toward the farmhouse, he encounters a man near the hayfield wall, and he plays the role of the wanderer, and he asks what district he's in, and whose property he's found himself on. Oh, where where am I? What, ooh, what ooh. is this place? <laughs> now, Thorkels is much better at all of this than I would have thought he was. <laughs> I'm starting to see why Snorri Goli doesn't like him. Well, uh, this man is not impressed. He calls Thorgils a fool and tells him that he's stumbled onto the property of Helgi Harbinson. Mm-hmm. Great warrior and an important man. Thorgils then asks if Helgi's at home, telling the man that he's he's hoping Helgi might take him in for a bit. He explains that he was recently made an outlaw in another district, and he's looking for some protection from a powerful man who could use his support and services. See, I really like this approach. Not only is it clever in that it's believable, it suggests that powerful men don't mind having outlaws with nothing to lose around. Mm-hmm. We've seen examples of Gothi and other well-to-do Icelanders taking advantages of outlaws to do their dirty work, and Thorkils is clearly aware of this, and that's the the whole game he's playing. Right. It's a good approach, uh, and it, it turns out that Helgi does like to take in outlaws, which, you know, that's a weird reputation, but there it is. Uh, <laughs> the man tells Thorgils that Helgi is staying overnight at his shieling called Sarp. Uh, it's down in the valley a ways. Uh, he's got his son, Hardman, with him. And two other outlaws that he's already taken in. Well, this is perfect. I mean, except that there are multiple armed men there, but yes. Yeah, but it's uh, only two. Sure. And a kid. Uh, so Thorgils asks for direction to the Shieling so that he can meet the great Helgi Harbinson and offer him his support and services in exchange for protection. And the servant, who doesn't suspect anything, tells him exactly how to find the Shieling. And with that information, Thorgils now rides back to the woods and lets everyone know the plan. Mm-hmm. They uh, they decide to have a little camp out for the night, and then make their way through the woods toward the shilling in the morning. They stop a short way from their goal, and they dismount to eat a little breakfast and get the lay of the land. I don't remember any groups stopping to eat breakfast in all of our journeys through the sagas. Uh, yeah, I mean we've had a couple of examples of it actually, uh, but it's not normal. Uh, yeah, Horth, uh, the 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 saga of Horth. Uh, his enemies uh, stop and eat breakfast before they do they uh, attack the island. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't it's not. Yeah, it's that. not common. Yeah. Um, way back to the beginning of this saga, we had a moment when uh, Alf and her friends stopped for breakfast somewhere, and it became known as Dagvernes, uh Breakfast oh, Point. That's right. We did. I think we mentioned that on the podcast. yeah yeah. Okay. Well, at this uh, point, so yeah, little things, but yeah, it, it's interesting. Like this. Um, so at this point, the saga shifts to the perspective of Helgi Harbinson in the Shieling. 
Mm-hmm. And as we said before, he's there with his son, Hardbane, who is also 12 years old, his shepherd, and then two outlaws. Their names are Eolf and Thorgils. Thorgils. Yeah. Oh, that won't get confusing at all. Yeah, I mean, not that we're necessarily going to talk about him a lot, but we'll call him Thorgils the Outlaw if we have to, just to keep things clear. All right. Um, and there are also uh, four women there as well. I uh, wonder what they're doing. sounds like a crowded shilling. Well, I mean, medieval Icelanders, they really, they really knew how to pack them in. Yeah. I don't think we appreciate just how tight living quarters could be in the pre-modern era. Well, in any era, honestly. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a question of space and money, available resources, uh, how many square feet you get to live in depends a lot on your personal circumstances. That's true. Yeah, fair enough. So Helgi rises early in the morning after a restless sleep and he calls his loyal shepherd to his side and he tells him that he had terrible dreams all night. And so he suggests maybe the shepherd should go outside, have a look around in the woods, see if there are any men about. Yeah, I'm sure the shepherd is very excited about this. Hey there, my lad. I had a dream. There were men outside waiting to kill all of us. Be a deer. Go on out there and see if that's true or not, will you? (laughs) Well, while many shepherds might mind, this one doesn't. (laughs) He just pops out for a while and comes back unharmed and excited. Good for him. And when Helgi asks him what he saw, well, he's got a lot of information. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting moment in the saga. I don't know how well it's going to translate to the podcast, but we'll give it a shot. So uh, he confirms for Helgi that there are, in fact, men outside. And Helgi asks him if he noticed the appearance of the men. Uh, the shepherd now pre- then provides a detailed description of every single man in Thorgil's party. Not just, like, detailed. We're talking about several pages worth of descriptions. Yeah, it's ten men. Uh, and there's one paragraph for each of them. So... Give or take, that's going to be a couple of pages. Yeah, and it, it, it's a very saga thing like digression to break up the action and spoil the tension that's building. Something we do See? a lot. Yeah, so we're doing it right then. <laughs> so, uh, John, how many of uh, these descriptions are we going to do? I mean, surely not all of them. Like you said, it doesn't oh, translate not. well. No, uh, I mean, they. it's interesting because you do get a lot of like visual detail about these figures. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it would just be tedious to go through all of them. Um some of them are uh, interesting for specific references to material objects, like the kind of clothes they're wearing, mm-hmm. the kind of saddle they have, all that kind of de- detail. Mm-hmm. Let's just do the major players. Thorgils, Botley, Thorlik. Okay. So here's the description of Thorgils. Uh, again, we're going to use the Kuhn's translation from the Penguin edition uh, for these longer quotes here. Um, I'll just give you a bit of it. Uh, one of the men sat on a saddle of colored leather and wore a black cloak. He was a large man of manly build, balding at the temples and with very prominent teeth. That's a pretty broad description until you get to the teeth. Yeah. Makes you wonder, though, big teeth? So does he mean protruding teeth or just large teeth? Well, why not both? I mean, it it does start to give you a sense of why Guthrun absolutely refuses to marry him, right? Like, Uh, Because Guthrun's (laughs) a lookist? Yes. Uh, this man is manly and clever, but apparently he's just too ugly for her. <laughs> well, uh, she's, you know, a woman of taste. Let's uh, <laughs> let's look at Thorlik next. Sure, yeah. So Thorlik is described as a man sitting on an enameled saddle, wearing a yellow-green tunic and a large ring on his hand. He was a most handsome youngster, with brown hair which suited him well, and everything about him was refined. 
See, now that's a looker. In fact, it's kind of a dandy. I suppose, maybe. Uh, I think he's just supposed to appear to appear noble, as in, of the nobility. Thus the enameled saddle, the fine-colored clothing, and his big fancy ring. Mm-hmm. It speaks to his economic status more than anything else, right? Okay. Uh, wrap it up with Botley. But you do get a sense of, of why Thorlick doesn't have leg biter, right? <laughs> like he's, right, right. You he's, know. I mean, he's, he's as close as the sagas get to a fop. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Botley, you want to hear about Botley. Uh, John, how yeah. much time do do you have to listen not, to? Not a lot. Uh, you know, we talked about this before we started, but, uh, you know, I've got a bit of a cold going. Uh, my, my voice is getting a little ragged here. So, well then, uh, you know, give me the brief version because this guy well, gets the, the carton treatment. We get a lot of detail. Yeah, he does. He does. But, you know, since you're not feeling well, let me let me tell you a little story about a man named Botley. Uh-huh. He's got a, a fine gilded saddle. He was wearing a tunic of red scarlet and a gold ring on his hand. About his head was fastened a band of gold-embroidered cloth. This man had fair hair falling in waves down to his shoulders. He was also fair-complexioned with a, a bent nose somewhat turned up at the end. Handsome eyes, blue and piercing and restless, a wide forehead, full cheeks. Lovely. I'm not done. His hair hung down in the front and was clipped at the eyebrows, and he was well built at the shoulders and broad across the chest. His hands were well formed, his arms strong, and his entire bearing refined. I must say in conclusion that no man I have ever seen looked so valiant-looking in all respects. He was also a youthful man, with hardly a hair on his face. He seemed to me as if he were burdened with sorrow. Um, so this guy basically has like telescoping eyes. This, this is, this is very specific. Very specific. Uh, the shepherd's a keen observer of detail, but and he's also got a, a flair for vivid description. He's wasting his time as a shepherd. Absolutely. Get this kid some ink and a quill, put him to work. And that's only three of the 10 guys. He's got a detailed account of everyone in Thorgill's party. Yeah. Uh, I take it back. We're going to do one more. <laughs> All right. All right. Which one? I'm just looking this over, uh, and the description of Hunboy the Strong is worth our time, uh, if only because of what he's wearing. Okay, well, but, all right, but you chose it, you do this one. Okay, uh, so the shepherd says, The next man looked away from the group. He wore a plated coat of mail and a steel helmet with a brim as wide as the width of your hand. He held a gleaming axe over his shoulder, the blade of which was an L in length. This man was dark, with black eyes, and the appearance of a Viking. Well, that's straight out of Dungeons and Dragons. This uh, <laughs> Hun Boy of the Strong, a plated coat of mail, steel helmet, gleaming great axe. Hun Boy of the Strong, son of Alf of Dollar, is neutral good. His ideal is that he helps those in what? trouble. His bond is that he owes a great debt to a noble family, oh, and his boy. flaw is that he is very superstitious. He was born in the distant land. Would you like to hear about your flaw? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yes. Uh, nobody wants to hear the whole backstory. Uh, uh-huh. And we also know that he was born in the distant land of Iceland, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, now it, this this sounds very much like the portrait of a fantasy hero, I grant you. Yeah. And the, the plated coat of mail is quite interesting to me because, to my knowledge, Vikings, especially those in Iceland, and despite what you might see on TV, didn't wear plate mail. Mm-hmm. If he's got this armor on and we're supposed to believe that it's there... 
uh, which, you know, that's up to us. Uh, he's, he's got it on some sort of Viking adventure in far distant lands. Right, and this alone makes him one of the cooler and more formidable guys in Thorgil's ambush party. Yes. Uh, now, after hearing about all the men assembled outside, Helgi figures he's probably in trouble. Well, he's not wrong. Yeah, because he's badly outnumbered. He then So he devises a plot to confuse things and hopefully even things out just a little. Another cunning plan? It's chock full of them, yes. Yep. He tells the four women who are present to put on men's clothing, which they do. And then he says, go out and get on those horses outside the shielding and ride as fast as you can to the farmhouse. And if this works, it should provide a useful distraction. Maybe draw a couple of Thorgil's men off and buy Helgi some much-needed time. Right now, while that's happening, Thorgil suspects that they've been spotted. Mm-hmm. Um, he might be the fact that a shepherd came out, looked directly at them for several minutes, and then walked back into the shielding. That might have been his clue. <laughs> uh, so he, uh, he urges the men to action. He tells them to mount their horses and ride the shielding. Uh, before they set off, a man rides up to them. He's described as short in stature and brisk in his movements. And uh, something more disturbing is the fact that his eyes start darting around in a strange manner. Certainly not a welcoming figure for Thorgils and the attackers. No. Well, I mean, he's not exactly for or against them. He greets Thorgils like an old friend, which he's not, and calls himself Hrop from Breithafjord. He says, well, I'm named for Killer Hrap. And the name fits, for I'm no man of peace, though I be small of size. Yes, that's the one. That's the voice. That's the <laughs> voice for Killer Hop. Um, now, Killer Hop is the, the mean old farmer that turned into a draugr early in the saga. He mm-hmm. owned the uh, property and then haunted that property that Olaf Peacock turned into Hjarderholt. Yes, they know all that. It's a lucky chance that I found you here, Thorgils. Uh, what the hell is going on in this valley? John. Hel- Helgi's already got two outlaws with him. Mm. Thorgils was accepted as a wandering outlaw. And now this weirdo shows up out of nowhere, wandering weirdo. around, and just happens to recognize Thorgils. Stop interrupting. Now, it may <laughs> okay. seem convenient, but life is full of happy surprises. Sorry, but I was going to seek you out, Thorgils. You see, I'm in some difficulty. I had an argument with my master not long ago, and things got a little heated. As my name indicates, I'm not one to put up with such insults. So I tried to kill him, although with little or no success. And to be honest, I, I didn't wait to find out. <laughs> I tried to kill him. I tried to kill him with little or no success. I didn't wait. Uh-huh. This guy sounds like a real winner. I, I Interrupt me one more time and you'll find out what kind of man I am. <laughs> Anywho, right. I stole his horse and here I am. All right. And as the saga says... Killer Hrop spoke at length, but asked few questions. Uh, I've met a lot of people like that in my time. When Killer Hrop finds out they're planning to attack Helgi Harbinson, he thinks it sounds like fun. Well, no one should look for me at the back of the fight. Well, now they are 10 plus one lunatic. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if he's an added advantage or a disadvantage. It's hard to say. But whatever the case, (laughs) inside the shielding, we have Helgi, Hardbane, the shepherd, Mm -hmm. And the two outlaws. That's five against 11, though we don't know yet if Helgi's son and Shepard are fighters. Mm-hmm. I swear, if something happens to that Shepard and his beautiful mind. <laughs> Part 45. 
the felling of three skillful helmet trees. I sense poetry coming up. Well, <laughs> that does have a certain ring to it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, after all this buildup, John, it's finally time for some action. I've been enjoying the buildup. I agree, but it's it's odd to me that the author has invested so much time and artistry on the buildup to an attack on Helgi Hardbainson. I mean, <laughs> you'd, you'd expect that maybe for, for Boltley, but the, yeah. the structure of this section and of this episode of Saga Thing 2, it is essentially the same as the structure leading up to the attack on Boltley. Right. Yeah, it's true. Our, our last episode started with Thorgard uh, goading her sons in action, and here we have Guthrun doing the same. Mm-hmm. Right? And then we had Hathor assembling the Avengers, and here it's Thorgils. Yeah, and and remember that la- the the last ambush took place at a shieling rather than at the main farmhouse. Right. There are more parallels to come as well. Exactly. So uh, so we've got a parallel structure, but uh, mm-hmm. I can't help but feel like the Thorgils and Helgi Harbinson section is much better written. It's got more detail, more realistic dialogue, and even even a better building of tension. There's a lot more invested here. <sighs> Those are strong words. Uh, so you're saying Botley deserved better, or Helgi deserves worse? <laughs> well, not that Boltley deserved better, but that the saga deserved better. I see. But, uh, you know, because it, it, I feel like that last episode, if you actually read those chapters, it's pretty rushed towards the killing of, of Boltley. And here, we're just really slowing down. And, and It's momentum, Andy. It's momentum. I see. Well, anyway, we got, uh, uh, we've got a hard Bainson to kill. You want to Yes, we it? do. <laughs> All right. So with Crazy Killer Hrop in tow, Thorgils and his men ride straight for the shieling. But as they arrive, they see what appears to be four men riding away quickly in the direction of the farmhouse. The party's divided on whether or not to follow these men, but Thorlek Boltlison urges them to ignore the riders, saying, They look more like women to me than Helgi and his companions. See? Thorlek, we've been dumping on them this whole time. He's got a keen eye. For fabrics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but I, do, I think he's right. He could also be commenting on the cowardice of men who would flee like these four riders are. So maybe mm. he's not saying they're women per se. Mm. Uh, he knows Helgi isn't the kind of guy to back down from a fight, even when uh, the numbers aren't in his favor. Uh, that's a matter of honor. Right, true. But that makes it all the more likely that he's talking about actual women, that he's saying that these don't look like the guys they're after. I think so, yeah. And uh, the rest of the party finally agrees. They agree not to pursue these women, so mm-hmm. Helgi's plan to send them out to kind of draw some men off, it didn't work. And it at least now, gets them out of the way of danger. Yeah, the women are safe, but uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Thorkils and his group, they, they approach the shieling rather cautiously. Well, most of them approach cautiously. <laughs> yeah. Killer Hrop is charging forward ahead of everyone, waving a stick spear over his head, and shouting about how it's a good time to show what he can do. Where the hell did this guy come from? <laughs> and why is he in this saga? I don't know and I don't care. I'm loving it. <laughs> well, like I think uh, he's, you know, comic relief, right? Now, obviously, Helgi and his outlaw friends hear this commotion. Uh, so they lock the you door. Think? and <laughs> And they pick up their weapons, preparing to defend themselves. Yeah, and Hrop, of course, is the first one at the door. Well, that's exactly what he said he would do, so right. there so, he is. Yes. Uh, so he bangs on the door and asks whether Reynard is at home, uh, which is a clever reference to the popular trickster fox of medieval folklore. Yeah, yeah. I was excited to see that reference in our translation, and uh, I did some digging. I, I've got a lot to say about old Reynard, this reference okay. to Reynard. Well, I'm willing to hear it, but I don't think we should stop here for uh, what sounds like it's going to be some kind of a lengthy digression. Can you... 
delay your turn with a prepared attack? <laughs> well, I don't think uh, delaying an action in combat is actually in the rules, but uh, I will ready an action. All right. Well, speaking of readying an action, inside the shielding, Helgi clutches his spear and shouts back, You'll find the fox in here fierce enough, since he dares to bite so near his lair. They thrust the spear out through the window and right through Hrop, uh, killing him. <laughs> Stupid Hrop. He really showed everyone, didn't he? Well, I mean, you know, he did yell that he was going to show them what he can do, and I think he did. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do we really expect any more from him? Oh, I mean, I expected a little bit more, if I'm being totally honest, uh, given <laughs> they interrupted the narrative to introduce him uh -huh. and, and all. But uh, I couldn't be more pleased with the outcome all the same. You know, anybody who models themselves on the legend of Killer Hrop and then brags about it probably deserves a spear through the chest, honestly. Exactly. So now Thorgil sees this and probably uh, breathes a sigh of relief, for one, but <laughs> <laughs> also urges his men to approach more cautiously. He notices that the shielding was built with a single roof beam that protrudes at each end. The beam supports a turf roof that is still fairly new with grass, and the grass hasn't yet fully rooted to help secure it in place. Mm, see, this is a good detail. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, you know, you don't often think about how these things are constructed yep. and... Uh, how you could exploit that construction. So he suspects that the roof could possibly be lifted and broken. So he urges the men to grab each end of the beam and apply enough pressure to break it, or at least to collapse the roof. Mm -hmm. So Thorstein the Black and Svein watch the door while the others get to work on that beam. Yeah. Now Hunboy the Strong and the Armadsons take one side. Thorgils takes the other side with Lambi and Butlistans. Together they lift the beam up as high as they can, and that puts an overwhelming amount of pressure on the center of the beam, snapping it in the middle and collapsing the entire roof on top of Helgi and his companions. Yeah, but they are ready for this. As soon as there's an opening, Hardbane, the 12-year-old son of Helgi, thrusts the head of his halberd straight out through that gap where the door mm -hmm. had been broken. It hits Thorstein the Black in the helmet and slices his forehead open, wounding him. Thorstein just wipes the blood from his eyes and says, It's true enough. There must be men inside. Lovely. Uh, at this point, obviously, uh, those inside are in a desperate situation. With the roof collapsing on top of him, he runs out through the door with such force that Thorsten and Sven are knocked backwards. Uh, Thorgils is right there, though, and he lands a heavy blow on Helgi's shoulder, kind of from the side, with his sword. Helgi spins toward him, armed with a wood axe, and shouts, This old fellow still dares to face your weapons! And he throws the axe at Thorgils and wounds his foot. Now, Boltley sees Helgi and rushes forward now, his father's sword legbiter in hand. He closes the distance and thrusts the famous sword through Helgi, washing the shame of his father's death from his hands in his enemy's blood. Well, look at you. When you said there was poetry coming, I didn't know it was going to come from you. <laughs> oh, shucks. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there. Got caught up in the moment. Well, uh, that's that's great, but there are still more men in the shielding. This is not over. There yet. are. Uh, including that talented, uh, uh, keen-eyed shepherd, uh, Helgi's son Hardbin, and the two outlaws. Uh, they all burst out running now. Uh, Thorlek quickly dispatches the first of the outlaws by slicing his leg off as he runs. Hmm. Hey, well, isn't it ironic, don't you think, that leg biter is never used for leg biting. Boltley uses it to stab Helgi. Meanwhile, Thorlek's out there chopping limbs off with a weapon probably called Lung Piercer. <laughs> this, the little-known sequel to Snowpiercer. <laughs> Uh, now, at the same time, Hunboy the Strong rushes straight for the second outlaw, uh, Thorgils the outlaw. The outlaw readies himself, 
but Hunboya just delivers a devastating axe blow that blasts through the defense and splits Thorgils in two down the middle. Uh, and finally, Hardbane, the son of Helgi, appears. Now, Thor the cat spots him and makes a move to charge, but Botli, who is also 12, by the way, grabs mm-hmm. his arm and stops him, and he says, No base deeds are to be done here today, Thord. Hardbane is to be spared. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty deep voice for a 12-year-old. He's very manly. I believe it was Apparently. established. Uh, so what about the, uh, manly what about the keen-eyed refined. shepherd? Is he okay? Oh, the keen-eyed shepherd, as far as I can tell, the shepherd survived to describe another day in great detail. Oh, good. It's a happy ending, then. Well, uh, not for everyone. Not for Helgi, it's not. Well, obviously. Yeah, and not for all those involved who survive, either. Uh, Lombi Thorbjarnarsson, for example, stops at Hjarðarholt on his way home to visit the Olafsons, and they start shouting at him at once as soon as they understand what he's done. They call his actions shameful and a betrayal of his ally. And as one of them says, These actions show that you're a descendant of Thorbjorn Pockmarked and not King Mjörkjartan. Yeah, ooh, and that's a low blow. Uh, yeah. It's true, Lombi is the half-brother of Olaf Peacock, but they shared a mother, not a father, right? And so he, they're ta- saying that he's a descendant of his father, Thorbjorn Pockmarked, rather than his maternal grandfather, the king. Helping to kill Helgi is not exactly the most honorable course of action, so I understand why they're upset. Sure. But it might have been the least worst option. Yes. Uh, as, as Lombi says, You only show your own lack of understanding. My actions have spared you all from certain death. Which, again, may be true, but hardly noble. Noble and dead is still dead, Andy. Yes. So it's a happy outcome for some of those involved. How's that? Uh, for mm-hmm. Botley and Thorlick, for example. Of course. A- and the shepherd. And for Thorgils, Mm -hmm. he's done the deed, and now he can go home and claim Gudrun as wife. Well, don't be so sure about that. Uh, But I think that's where we'll have to leave things for now. Now that Butley and Thorlick have avenged the death of their father on Helgi Harbinson, everything should be calm in the district. We should be able to tuck Lakstala Saga in for a peaceful sleep in our next episode. That's probably a little optimistic, but... uh... At least the Boltley sons got their vengeance. Mm -hmm. Surely there's no more room for plotting revenge and violent action in this saga. Well, I guess everyone's going to have to wait and see. Or hear, or whatever. Uh, For now, we've got a summons to do, I think. Yes, Yes, we do. Good, because I didn't prep one, so I hope you have something. I do. All right, so why don't you do the announcement then? I'm just going to sit back, sip my coffee, and be surprised. Let's go! Summons to the court! English language translators of Laxdala Saga. The translators? Okay, this yeah. is highly unorthodox. Unorthodox? Yes. You've summoned concepts and textual traditions before. Yes, but always under the broader umbrella of looking at one of the characters. I look, I'm no Snorri or Ref the Sly disguising my moves. <laughs> I make my moves out in the open. I'm bold. Uh, no matter how illogical they are. Okay, uh, fine. So what have the translators done to earn a summons? Oh, is this about the, the Reinhardt thing from before? It is, yes. Ah, okay. Yeah, you, you see, like you, I got very excited when I saw, well, very excited might be strong, but <laughs> I got excited <laughs> when I saw the reference to Reynard the Fox at the start of Chapter 64. That's cool. I mean, you know, as excited as we get about things. Uh, for mm-hmm. those of you who aren't familiar with Reynard. Uh, he is a popular folktale trickster figure from the medieval French and English literature traditions. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, Dutch and German and so mm. on and so forth, yep. if you want to go But further. he gets a start in a 12th century French romance called The Roman de Renard, or The Romance of the Fox. So, Could you do that with a deeper French accent, please? Just to really, really Roman, lay it out there. The Roman de Renard. <laughs> That's some stale French bread right there. Uh it's a, it's a very popular allegorical story. Uh, it features anthropomorphic animals, including uh, Reynard the fox and his mortal enemy, Isengrim mm-hmm. the wolf. Uh, sounds like something out of Tolkien, really. Uh, yeah. They're episodic tales modeled on the emerging genre of chivalric romance. Uh, yeah. But the overall effect is sort of satirical. It highlights the corruption and the generally sinful nature of man uh, through mm-hmm. sort of animal parable. That's right. Yeah, it's fun and uh, surprisingly violent. Uh, just imagine Disney's Robin Hood if it was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I will buy and a actually, ticket to John, that. John, uh, looking looking this stuff up, uh, I discovered uh, in my survey of Reynard stuff that Disney did indeed intend to make a Reynard movie. Uh, way back in the day. Is that how they ended up um, making Robin Hood? Is that this, this portrait That is, over? yeah. They used the character models. Um, they they ultimately decided that Reynard was not not a uh, the kind of character that would represent Disney very well. Right. Um, so they, probably they right. scrapped it. Right. Yeah, they scrapped um, it and then uh, used the models to build the Robin Hood uh, movie. Right. Every time so, I uh, look into that Robin Hood movie, you realize just what an unbelievably half-assed production that film was. Uh, what you mean? All the recycled, all the recycled <laughs> footage from other films. Uh, the fact yeah. that Little John is a bear, just so they could use the dance sequence from of Baloo. Uh, everything about it is just the sort of recycled stuff. They ran out of money, which is why the ending just stops suddenly, and then the the uh, rooster comes on and says, and then and then King Richard came back and just well, he just sorted everything out, and that is <laughs> li- <laughs> that's literally how they hand wave a ten minute sequence they didn't have the money to film. That's eh, fine. It's fine. Still good. It's still oh, one of my favorites. Man, I love that it's one. Something special. I like it. Well, anyway, so um, you were discussing. As as, you were discussing uh, uh, Reynard. Yeah, Reynard. The 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 romance of Reynard. Mm-hmm. It gets adapted by the Dutch first, and then the English. And like you said, it it's quite popular. Um, if you've ever read uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, for example, then you've encountered a Reynard story in the Nun's Priest Tale. Right. So, in other words, stories about Reynard the trickster are all over medieval Europe. Uh, and really, yeah. not just for a century or two. It's a lasting tradition, and it crosses over into the early modern period and even into the 20th century, depending on where you look. Okay, so now for the issue at hand. According to most modern English translations, crazy pseudo-killer Hrop approaches Helgi's shielding door, and the text reads as follows. And uh, again, the Kniva Kuhn's version reads like this. Hrop ran up to the shielding straight away and asked whether Reynard was at home. And Helgi answered, You will find the fox here inside fierce enough, since he dares to bite so near his lair. See, that's a good exchange. It's the kind of thing we like to see in the sagas. But yeah, I feel like you're going to ruin it now, aren't you? Sadly, yes. <laughs> you see, like you, uh, I'm intrigued by this sudden reference to Reynard in a medieval Icelandic saga. Mm-hmm. Until I read this line, I wasn't aware of a Reynard tradition in medieval Iceland. I hadn't actually given it much thought, if I'm being honest, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if, I guess, Reynard stories were circulating in Iceland uh, from the 12th century onward just because they were popular on the continent. Sure. Okay. Uh, now, like we said, the story was extremely popular. Uh, if Lakshdala Saga was written around the mid-13th century, which I think was usually where we peg it, 
that would give us plenty of time for the Reinhardt stories to make their way from the mainland continent to Iceland. Agreed. So, uh, so reading the English translation of the saga, I just take for granted that this is exactly what Rop says, and I smile at Rop's clever choice of words, and that's how okay. we read translations. You're just teasing us now. What's the Icelandic original? Okay, well, I don't want to get anyone upset by my reading of it here, but here's the basics, and I'm going to go with an Old Norse pronunciation here, or a semblance of it, so don't freak out if you're listening for modern Icelandic, Okay. <laughs> Um, the, <laughs> the text reads fantastic like job this. of covering your posterior Andy yeah how about it's going to be a blend of old Norse modern Icelandic and whatever <laughs> I feel like <laughs> uh huh uh huh yeah so the text reads rapor hlepor theigaropa selith augspurdig fort skotli varini now the simplest and most direct translation is this Krop rushes at once up to the shed and asked whether the fox was inside. Yeah, and I didn't hear Reynard's name in that translation. No. No, you did not. So what was the word for fox in the quote? Scotly? Yes, yeah, Scotly. Yeah. Uh, S-K-O-L-L-I. Right, but the most common word for fox in Icelandic is refer, right, which mm-hmm. uh, we have seen before because of Raft the Sly. Right? Um, yes. Yeah, but foxes often have more than one name within a single culture or language. Um, in English, a fox can be called Reynard, which is really just a reference to the French for fox, but it's meant to recall that, that Reynard of folk and romantic tradition. Right? Mm-hmm. I assume that's the case. Uh, so can we maybe say that Scotly is the Icelandic name for Reynard? Well, I mean, that's what I was thinking. So I started looking for the Icelandic Reynard tradition. And there's got to be a little something there. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, but but honestly, I couldn't find anything. Now that that said, my resources for researching Icelandic folk traditions are fairly limited here in northern Mississippi. But I did put out a feeler about mm-hmm. this to our good friend Sion, oh, lovely, the acclaimed Icelandic poet, novelist, screenwriter, and all around nice guy. So he wrote back to tell me that there isn't a Reynard tradition in Iceland that he's aware of. Mm-hmm. In fact, he points out that there aren't many folk stories about foxes in Iceland at all which he thinks might be because Arctic foxes typically live so far away from the human habitats that they simply didn't enter the folk culture in the same way that they did on the continent or in the British Isles. Hmm. Uh, The only exception, he says, is the feared skugaboulder, which is the result of a fox mating with a farm cat. (laughs) And because of this, the skugaboulder doesn't mind being near humans Mm -hmm. and actually loves scheming up trouble for them. Now, Sion also mentioned, and I, I saw this in my own research, that the term Scotly, uh, which is what Killer Hop uh, says in the text, is another term for a devil or for uh, Old Nick in Iceland. So I guess he's saying that uh, that, that little devil right, inside, that little devil inside uh, yeah. meaning the fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, outside of that, uh, I couldn't find anything to suggest that Reynard stories were circulating in medieval Iceland or beyond. Right. So I, I, I guess I don't think they were, maybe because it wasn't relatable or uh, we just don't have that info available to us. Right. And that, that's interesting. I mean, given the popularity of the stories on the continent and in England, uh, and especially, you know, sort of in that continental literature that is making its way up to Iceland during the saga writing age, uh, you have to assume that that Reynard at least made his way to Iceland in uh, foreign literature. Yeah, I, I would have thought so. But to be fair, it, it's a somewhat separate issue, right? I, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about Reynard's presence in Scandinavia, if there was one. Uh, but for the purposes of this summons, 
it at least seems clear that the translators of Lock Stylus Saga have been taking some liberties with this particular line. Um, but it's not just one translator. You see, every English translator. I'm not calling out Geneva Kunz here. No, no, actually, I'm not. Um, in fact, there is a logical reason why they're mm-hmm. all choosing the word Reynard. Um, I've checked a lot of English translations, uh, and most of them have Hrop asking whether Reynard is at home for for Scotli Vari Inni. Really? Yeah. So if you go back to the earliest translation of the saga, um, that appears to be Muriel Press's translation from around 1899. Yeah, that's followed by a second translation done by Robert Proctor in 1903. And both of these uh, are available for free, by the way, on the very helpful saga database, sagadb.org. Right. Definitely bookmark that if you're into the sagas. Yeah. Now, although Proctor's translation on that page is missing, uh, chapter 64 on the webpage, which was very disappointing... Because huh. that's the chapter I needed here. <laughs> um, but I did find it on the uh, How the Trust digital library. Um, so let's go with Proctor's translation of the line. It reads, Hrop leaps straight away up onto the felcot and asks whether Renard be within. The uh, the felcot. Yeah. I actually I had to look that term up. Yes, um, I would think so. I, I didn't know that a cot was another word for shed, but apparently huh. it is. So oh, put cottage. That in your word cottage. Bank. That makes sense. Cottage. Ah, oh, interesting. So, well, there you go. So how do we get from Scotly to Renard? Well, I have a theory. So let's start with the word itself. Scotly is an agent noun from the verb scotla, uh, which means to skulk away, right? Mm-hmm. Skulk. Uh, so Scotly is a common word for fox in Icelandic, and it literally means skulker. Ah. Andy, did you know that a group of foxes can be called a skulk? Yes, but only from researching this topic. I didn't actually know that before. I'm sure I was told at some point because people really like to share what a group of something is called. That's I mean, so in all fairness, that's probably the fault of the conspiracy of lemurs. What's that? Nothing. Lemurs? Go on. The skulker. <laughs> it's conspiracy of lemurs. All right. The skulker. Yes. Uh, so if you were translating this line, you could go with skulker but that might not be clear enough for an English-speaking audience. Well, true, but you could just go with fox instead. Sure, but where's the fun in that? Especially when your Old Norse to English dictionary recommends Reynard as a good translation for Scotland. Um, Okay, but which dictionary? Because there's more than one, and I have suspicions about this. Well, both of the major ones do it. Uh, mm-hmm. If you check uh, Gerzuega's an Icelandic Uh, a concise dictionary of Old Icelandic, which was published in 1910, you'll find the following under Scotly. Fox, comma, Reynard. Um, So what exactly happened to Skulker in that definition? Well, it's not clear enough, I guess. And also it's a concise dictionary, so you have to make cuts somewhere, Mm -hmm. don't you? Sure. Uh, But Zoega's dictionary, as you uh, already know, didn't get published in England until 1910. Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't really help us with our earliest translations of the sagas, right. of this saga. And Zoega was an Icelander who would very likely have been checking his work against other sources. And possibly earlier translations, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah. say, Muriel Press. Uh, yeah, uh, no. Well, I don't think it's just that. Right, no, no. Uh, but any good dictionary maker is going to consult predecessors, right? This is, And that's going to lead to borrowings. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. See what you're, you're you're coming up with there, and that's what I think happened here, um, because the other major dictionary, an Icelandic English dictionary by mm-hmm. Richard Cleesby and Gudbrandur Vigfusson, uh, that was published in 1874, 
And that was likely the dictionary consulted by Muriel Press, Robert Proctor, and Gerzoega when they were looking for a good English translation for the word Scotly. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold on, because I've actually got this one. I've got it right here on the shelf. Uh, yeah. Please be uh Let me get to Scotly. Uh, I'm, oh John, I'm loving the participation. You're a good, engaged student. <laughs> I think with that attitude, you're going to go far, uh-huh. buddy. Uh, here, it, here it is. Uh, yes. Uh, okay, it says, The Skulker, a fox, Reynard. <laughs> uh-huh. So at least they preserved the literal meaning skulker, but, but there's our Reynard. That's right, yeah. Exactly. And given that this dictionary of Icelandic to English was a joint effort between an Icelander and an Englishman, mm-hmm. well, it makes sense that Richard Cleesby might have suggested Reynard, which was when he's running around England, it's a common colloquial word for fox mm-hmm. in England. Um, and it's a good, appropriate alternative for fox. So this is especially appropriate because the dictionary that Cleesby and Vigfason were producing was not a dictionary of Old Icelandic or Old Norse to English. It was for Icelandic and English of the 19th century. Mm, that's a good point. Uh, but it's also at that point, I think probably the only dictionary or at least certainly the most prominent dictionary around for Press and Proctor and Zuega. So they're all consulting it and they adopt Cleesby's suggestion because it's the most interesting alternative to Fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least for the sake of clarity, especially for this particular line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, out of context, Skulker just doesn't really work for an English-speaking audience. Um, everybody, at least everybody in England, does know that Reynard is a fox. Everybody it's a word that is used for fox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it, so it's there in the dictionary, and it's got, it, it, it seems to be a great solution to the translator's problem. Yeah, but they could have just used the word fox. Yes, but it, it's not nearly as fun, and you know it. Yeah, but it's clearer. It doesn't impose a whole cultural tradition onto the translation. It doesn't really belong there. I mean, I suppose. But if you're trying to capture the nuance of Icelandic attitudes towards the the Arctic fox, I guess it does a decent job, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Translation isn't always about accuracy. Sometimes it's about feel. And that's what I think we've got here. Uh, Hrapp is basically saying, is that skulking little devil, that Scotly at home? Mm -hmm. And to an English audience of the Victorian era... Calling him Reynard is a decent approximation of Hrop's phrasing. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Um, so is that it? You got it? Is that, that we're done? Um, oh, just to uh, confirm that this tradition is still happening, um, Sion did add one more thing that I think is is quite quite interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So Sion expects that uh, translators are using Reynard uh, simply to help their readers get the point. And so mm-hmm. he gives an example from The Blue Fox, which is one of the first books that I ever read from, from Sion. It's quite good and very accessible if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has he uses the word Skotladotr uh, in the Icelandic edition, which means the daughter of Skotli. So a daughter of uh, the little devil or the little fox or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so when the translator who translated it into English, who is, of course, British, uh, translates this for the English-speaking audience, uh, she actually chose the phrase, the daughter of Reynard, uh, when translating. Ah. So even in the 21st century, it's mm-hmm. still happening. Um, I guess in England, Reynard is still a very commonly used phrase for foxes. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it's never, uh, I don't think it's ever been as common in America, but yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, so, um, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Good. Uh, it was a long way to go to say that it was the dictionary definition, but but it was good. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we had fun getting there, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we'll let the listeners be the judge, I guess. Uh, for now, it's time to wrap this up. 
so if you have anything to add to this discussion about skulking foxes and conspiratorial lemurs, you can jump in on the conversation with all our friends at the unofficial official Saga Thing Discord. Uh, we've got an episode discussion channel there where you can share your thoughts on whatever episode you've just listened to. And if you're hearing me now, that's probably episode 36L, which is this one. But uh, if Discord's not your thing, you can reach us on Twitter where we're at SagaThingPod or on Facebook and the gram at SagaThingPodcast. And we've even got an email address, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. And if none of that works, why don't you publish your own Old Norse English Dictionary and insert your question under the word Scotly, because you know Andy will be looking for it. I mean, how could I not? A new dictionary? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes we've put together over the last uh, nine years, uh, please leave us a Oof. review on your favorite podcasting service, write about us online, and tell your friends. Did you did you say nine years? Yes, we have been going at it since fall of 2013. Yeah, which means we are coming up on 10 years of this ridiculous podcast. <laughs> yes, and uh, we'll still be doing Lex Nala Saga when yep. we get there. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> oh, no, no. No, no, no. But, uh, John, we are not only the best podcast reviewing the sagas of the Icelanders. Oh. We're also the oldest. It's amazing. It's hubristic, but amazing. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. To the shoreline along a path similar to what is now Snaffelsnet. <laughs> oh, sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. Just getting warmed up. Yep, warmed understand. up. Warming up the old mouth. Yep. <laughs> it, 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 it didn't go well. Um. <laughs>